Oh, Douglas Finch, thank you so much for coming on to Forte Podcast. And I have to say, it's a huge privilege to be invited to your home to do this episode. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah. Thank you. Well, um, I'm very excited to have this discussion with you. Um, I want to start off this episode um, through a, a non-musical route, if I may, first. Okay. Um, during my research on you as a as a musician, um, in an interview with a cross-eyed pianist, you were talking about your early childhood uh-huh. and early career aspirations. And I read somewhere there was uh, a line where you said um, you wanted to be a psychologist if you weren't going to be a composer. Oh, I've, uh, that's true, but I forget that I said that. <laughs> <laughs> it was about seven years ago. Um, and I found that really interesting. Um, mm. I was wondering if you could tell us a story about why you wanted to be a psychologist at that age. Well, looking back, um, I think I must have been about nine at the time. Don't ask. You know, I've, it's very difficult to know why I thought that. But I know at the dinner table we were discussing possible options for me. And I said, either I want to become a composer, because I was just getting to know Beethoven and I thought, well, I can be another, another <laughs> Beethoven, you know. <laughs> or there's something about, I don't know how I knew about psychiatrists and psychologists mm. and what they did and what, what it involved, but, but I felt that I could somehow help people to sort of be happier or to understand themselves or something. I don't know why, where it came from. Mm. And um, I, I think my parents, when they heard that, they couldn't understand where where that was coming from <laughs> either. Um, I mean, it, it's funny that uh, as I've gone through life, I've, I've often had students, uh, you know, I teach, I've taught a lot since my early 20s, and I've often had people that have had some problems. They seem to be drawn to me. <laughs> I don't know mm. why. Um, maybe they sense uh, a fellow kind of neurotic or something. <laughs> and um, But I feel, yeah... I, I find it a great joy to be able to kind of work with someone who has talent but can't, f- you know, find out how to deal with it because they have so many other problems in their life, mm. or even not that much talent, but to, to feel that you can somehow help, mm. I guess. But um, yeah, and maybe like I know that a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists have. Um, certain difficulties themselves, which is what draws them. So I guess I was a very introverted child and often very, probably, it was never diagnosed, but probably had some kind of anxiety because I remember whenever school time came or something like that, I get terribly nervous about going and having to meet all these people. And once I was there, I kind of enjoyed it. I I remember there were some times I I had some great times at school but also some terrible times, especially in my early teens. But um, but yeah, that that's probably that's probably the main reason because I, you know, because of my uh, that I was aware I had a kind of sensitivity to the inner inner conflicts that one one can have. Mm. Mm. So, at nine years old, did you know that this sensitivity was a good trait for a psychologist? Did you make that link as a nine-year-old, or was it just intuitive that a link? You mean music and uh, with with your awareness of yourself and your sensitivity? Oh yes, and the the responsibilities of a psychologist. I see. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Maybe I saw some TV shows about it. I mm. <laughs> I can't remember. I watched so much television as a child. <laughs> Endless television. You know, I'd come home from school, I was so worn out from the traumatic events of getting through the school day. I'd just sit for six hours sometimes and watch sitcoms. You know, anyway, but, but, um, so maybe that's where I got it. You know, mm. who knows where we pick up things from. But, um, but yeah, I made that connection. I just, no, I just thought it would be very interesting. I th- I, th- I was very interested in how people think and, and uh, what what motivates them and what problems they might have and how they could overcome them. Hmm. Um, when I studied with Professor James Kirby during my bachelor's, there was one thing he said to me that really stuck with me was that um, 
a, a good teacher has to be part psychiatrist and part teacher. Mm. Would would you say that's something you agree with too? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I, well, I mean, you don't want to become an amateur, do something that a professional, you know, if someone really has problems, you, yeah. you, you hopefully guide them to a professional person. Uh, but yeah, you want to have empathy for them and to, and to feel that you can um, be there for them. And if they come in and they simply can't play anything that day, and I've, I've had that experience, they can, they're unable to play anything. Um, then you, you you talk and you, you don't be afraid to talk about things that aren't to do with music. Mm. You know, not to get too personal, but 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 I think there's. Um, I remember, I think Philip Folk feels the same. I know you did an interview with him recently, and I remember him, him once telling me because we teach at the same place, and he said, "Oh, I just had a lesson where we just went for a walk," <laughs> and I thought that that's a great idea. You know, we don't always have to learn by sitting at the keyboard wow. sitting at the piano have you had have you had an occasion where you did that too you went for a walk or? that's a good question no not exactly no no um we usually stay in the room but 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 we um no i haven't done that yet i don't know i don't know why hmm. i go for lots of walks with people but um it's never quite been from the from the music lesson room to to a walk I yes. think that's uh, I haven't I haven't caught up with Philip on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well Philip likes walking he does <laughs> yes yes I know <laughs> are you still interested in psychology now is is your interest in psychology at the same intensity as it was when you were younger or more or less I think, um, yeah, actually, I, I still am. And I, I have, a f I don't want to talk about my, my students, really. It's too personal. But, but they, um, you know, I still feel that I'm trying to help certain, mm. certain people um, that have, you know, and maybe because of COVID and all this, this has become much more to the forefront of people's thinking. They realize it's, it's become a more normal subject to talk about. Not just about physical illness, but, but mental, mental illness and problems. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm still thinking of it. And one of my um, my good friends over here, Graham Kidd, is a professional psychiatrist. He worked a lot in hospitals and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, we improvise together. He's 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 he 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 doesn't. He's not really a trained pianist. Although we started off having some lessons together. But it just, it's sort of evolved into just complete chaotic improvisations and, you know, maybe a little bit of a Chopin waltz and then for a few minutes and then improvise for the rest mm. of the time. And then we didn't have lessons anymore. We just every once in a while got together and did our thing. But, but I, so, and I often talk with him and, and other psychologists and psychiatrists that are in his circle, you know, so, mm. I have, so I've, I've gotten to know a little bit about about things <laughs> oh interesting mm. well with um in regards to uh improvising with friends do you think that's a uh, a very effective way of getting to know someone through improvising together and bonding yeah, with someone yeah yeah i guess so um i don't always do it because I, I don't always have friends that are that interested in necessarily in, in improvising but when they do uh, yeah i think you can learn a lot from mm. just having that activity together mm. um i mean just it's it's simply just fun you know it's it's like a, a kind of game you know rather than playing basketball you you improvise mm. or whatever or billiards or yes whatever <laughs> yeah. i mean moving on to the topic of improvisation I was uh, doing a bit of going down memory lane for this episode and I remember auditioning for Conservatoire around 2012, all the conservatoires in England. Uh -huh. And I've noticed that the only place I was asked to improvise was at Trinity Laban, the only place. Hmm. And I still remember the process where I finished playing my pieces and they slid me a piece of paper across the table with some themes on the piece of paper, mm -hmm. about four themes, and I had to choose one. 
And the one I chose, um, I had to compose, well, improvise a 30-second theme piece on that chosen theme. And um, I wondered, because you're uh, a professional improviser too, and um, I wondered, where do you think, well, what do you think is the importance of improvisation in contemporary music society? Is it a lost art? Well, that's part of it. Um, it was something that was part of musical life, um, at least last three centuries until it started to die out at the beginning of the 20th century, I think. Um, but also, I, I just think it's, um, in, in, the, in the case of auditioning people, just to see, even if they've never improvised before and never, or never thought that they'd improvised before, they, they probably did things that they didn't think was um, good enough to be called improvising. But actually, any time you put your hands on the p piano or on your instrument or do anything that, that isn't predetermined to a cer you know, mm. certain extent, you're you're improvising. I would say that you're improvising. So, um, and it's interesting, really. In in terms of that audition thing, it's really just to see how whether they're open to just trying. It doesn't. It's it's never really comes into an important aspect of the mark, you know. Because if someone's ever done it before, uh, uh, they're not expecting to do it. We're, we're not going to say, "Oh, you can't improvise." So. We don't want you here. It's nothing like that, you know. Mm. It's it's more. Um, we might just find something out about them, like you say. You get to know f friends, and you play, you know. So it's just you know, how do they approach it? Do they do they play the theme exactly and try to be very um, proper about it, or do they right away kind of do something else, or even something a bit radical, or 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 something with a bit of feeling? You know, even if it's just a few notes, you can tell if there's some kind of feeling in it. You mm. know. So, but but then, but yes, I think um, having. I mean, at the moment, I have quite a few students in my improvisation class, more than usual, about fifty. Um, have to divide it into different groups, and um, they seem to be more gradually becoming more and more enthusiastic about about the idea and um, some of the students have gone on to kind of include it in their programs um, and, do, and and they're always surprised when they do it for the first time they're quite scared about it and then, and then they decide well maybe at the end of the program I'm just going to ask the audience for something and improvise and and they're always surprised how how much it seems to how much the audience enjoys that and it, it maybe maybe it wasn't even really that good <laughs> in terms of I mean how do we judge it, it maybe yeah. you know in terms of rigorous compositional techniques and all that but but there's something about the what's the the third wall or whatever you call it or the where where suddenly the audience feels um, we're part of this you know we're yeah, and and this there's nothing what's happening here is just uh, you know it's never happened before and it's mm. it's just gonna you know. It might be good. It might be bad. It might go nowhere. It, but oh, that was interesting, you know. Mm. And also, I, I tell my students also that in terms of judgment, it's really quite open. And um, I mean, look at look at something like uh, a film by Andy Warhol, where you're sitting there looking at um, someone sleeping for eight hours. Okay, so it's about the imagination of the audience isn't it so so when you're improvising you're playing some stuff and it's partly up to the it's a responsibility of the listener to kind of make their own uh make sense out of it in a way it's not all about you making sense it's it's a shared experience hmm. you know i don't know if that makes any yes any sense uh, maybe i'm exaggerating that a bit you know but but I and it's certainly in free improv kind of circles. That's the aesthetic. It's you know, you, it's a happening kind of, and and the listeners are there and they're involved in that happening. Mm. But uh, but even when you play something more more conventional and stylistic and so on, a solo improvisation on piano, 
I still think that uh, it's only you that are aware of the inconsistencies of your form and the mistakes that you're making. And the audience um, doesn't know you've made a mistake. Mm. I, I want to really explore the idea of what you just mentioned. It's pretty hard to judge what makes a good um, improvisation. Um I think from my experience, just listening to people who have improvised and the people I've seen do it, um, from a personal standpoint, the thing that impresses me the most and makes me come to the conclusion that this was a good improvisation is that the ability to think of harmonic progressions and melodies and the structure that could have passed for an actual piece, but it wasn't. I think that impresses me most. I mean... Uh, from your standpoint, what do you think makes a successful improvisation? Is there a is there a uh, an existing criteria? Do you think? Well, well, what you've just said is is I think a very um, reasonable kind of aesthetic principle to mm. say that um, it should aspire to be a composition that that has the same what you would expect of a composition is it has a structure it has it has a kind of organic sense of moving from one place to the other and mm -hmm. that it somehow makes sense. Um, and so, yes, I think uh, certainly in most cases, I think that that's, I would say the same thing in terms of judging a, an improvisation, but, but it depends how far you want to kind of extend the boundaries to mm -hmm. like what I'm saying. If someone does something like um, a bit, like 60s <laughs> um like for friend i'll just tell you one little story yeah I, I i've been at trinity for a long time now doing various different things but in my early days i was just lecturing on 20th century music mm -hmm. and um i knew about this improvisation competition that was going on and i thought it was kind of interesting and and I think one, a few people knew that I did some improvising. So they asked if I'd come and judge this competition. And so I was the judge for, the, for it. And I heard some very interesting things. And um, there, there were two rounds. They were given a, a theme for the first round. And then the second round was just four notes that they picked out of a hat. And um, it was Philip Coleman, who's still teaching there, that was organizing this. And anyway, so um, one person who is a singer took the four notes and he took his chair and positioned it on the stage and sang one note. Then he moved the chair and positioned it somewhere else and in a different tone of voice and a different kind of sensibility sang the second note. And then he moved it again, I don't know where, and sang the third note and then similarly he sang the fourth note and that was his improvisation. And I caused a bit of a stir by giving him the first prize for this. <laughs> because he also showed a lot of kind of skill in in the first round you know but but there was something conceptually brilliant about what he did and there was a kind of attitude and it somehow worked as a statement somehow so so that's a case where you, you can sometimes go uh, that th your normal way of, of assessing something you can mm. throw it out the window and Say, oh, that sort of struck me. It's, you know, Before we move on, can you articulate what was it about that concept that struck you of the, of the moving of the chairs? You'd have to see and hear and witness the whole... He turned it into a kind of, a kind of weird um, theatrical event that happened to use those notes. It's very minimal, of course, but... I don't know. It it's, it just seemed to work. <laughs> it was convincing in that time, and, and I it probably the way I'm describing it, it just sounds ridiculous. But but and probably some people listening thought it was ridiculous. But right. but I think if you were there and you you, you witnessed it, you would see the, the confidence and the you know verging between you know that fine line between daring arrogance <laughs> and and humility. Mm. Of you're actually doing what you believe in in fact that fine line he seemed to walk it mm. convincingly 
<laughs> you could have easily tipped over <laughs> in the other direction. You know? Teetering on chaos and, yeah, and yeah. order. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those are normally the best um, performances, aren't they? The walking yeah, the that fine line. Sort of on the tightrope. On yeah. the tightrope, yeah. 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 Mm. Um, have you judged any more improvisation competitions since then? Uh, yeah, I've been... Well, well, actually, I run this competition now. I've ended up ah. kind of... So I do it every year, and I create my own themes for them. And, and um, But I, I usually don't sit on the jury. We usually get one or two people from... Trinity Laban and a guest from somewhere else and I like to have more than one person now to kind of yes and um, it's it's wonderful wonderful competition that they do it's such incredible variety mm. but it's you know that the the person that wins usually deserves to win and it's really hard to say why it's not all just to do about skill <clears throat> it's really to do about sound quality some kind of inner musicianship, some ability to listen. They might not do the technically most advanced things or even structurally showing so much brilliance or anything, but there's something that's kind of touching or uh, really communicates. Um, yeah, so so anyway, yeah, so I, I don't judge that. But I'm thinking the last... One of the last times I judged, if, several years ago, I ran an improvisation um, festival and we had an international competition. Um, although it was mostly people from the UK, I think there was one or two people from the States that came mm -hmm. over and they played all different instruments. And um, that was really interesting because I, I deliberately hired a jury that would be opposite ends of the spectrum. So... I had Eddie Prevo, who's from a group called AMM, uh, has written books about improv free improvisation, and, and he's a kind of, you know, his, I've done workshops with him, and his, his philosophy is that anyone can improvise immediately, and the more you know, the less you can improvise. So, you know, ignorance is good. And and um, there's some truth to that, by the way, because uh, you can know so much that you get trapped and you can't you can't think of anything. Um, and then on the other side, so he was on one side, and on the other side was Naji Hakim, who is the organist. At that time, he was still at l'Église de la Trinité in Paris, which he was su succeeded Messiaen, and um, brilliant improviser, absolutely astounding. And um, his philosophy is. It takes at least 13 years to learn how to improvise. <laughs> and this is how he he learned through Jean Langlais and others and with rigorous kind of training. And so, <laughs> and, um, so it was a little bit tricky coming to the first prize <laughs> out of the, the, the wide variety of kind of things we heard. But, but we, ma we managed to get a first, second and third. Yeah prize out of that <laughs> I'm, but I'm it, it's silly to make it a competition in a way but yeah. sorry I'm I just want to say that I, I it would be against a lot of people's taste to even consider making it something competitive mm -hmm. something as creative as improvisation but my argument is that I wanted to elevate it to, to the level of other competitions you know why why shouldn't it be taken seriously just like you know People, the Chopin competition yeah. or the Rubinstein or the, you know, piano competitions or whatever, you know. Mm. Anyway. I was thinking if, if these competitions were broadcasted, it could be such a, uh, a, a great wealth of material for other composers to draw from, these these new ideas that people are coming up with, in a way. Would, would you say that's sort of like a, a benefit from from broadcasting sort of that's a good point I, I don't know of any um, any that have been broadcast any competitions like that there are very few anyway but the mm. only ones I know are, are organ uh, like St. Albans organ improvisation competition maybe a long time ago that was broadcast but I don't think it is anymore but um, but yes I, I think it would be very interesting mm. I suppose the the broadcasters would say it's a bit of a risk because we don't know what's going to come out, and, you know. 
what's going to come out over the airwaves, you know. Yeah. But um, but that's part of the enjoyment, I think. I think yes. we become so cautious about what we put on TV or on radio. It's got to mm. go through all these kind of, you know, we don't want to bore anyone. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to do the wrong thing. And so... Everything has to be controlled. Yeah. Yeah, and predictable. And yes. watered down. And watered know. down. Yeah. Um, I'm actually very, very glad you mentioned uh, that statement, which is very, very full of wisdom, I think, which was uh, sometimes knowing too much can hinder your improvisation. Um, sometimes ignorance <laughs> is the key. Uh, which, which brings me to my um, next point, actually. Um, are you familiar with the American rapper Eminem? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I've heard some things and, um, he, he's not in the public eye quite so much anymore, is no he? No anymore, yes, yes. But he was really big for a he while. He was, yes. And, and kind of controversial for reasons I can't quite remember yes. what. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But, but, uh, he, he did an interview with 60 Minutes, which was an American, Oh. oh yeah. um, I think it's American, um, where he was talking about how he came up with his material. And <clears throat> and during the interview, he brought out a massive box full of notes and scribbles that he jotted down during the day of rhymes that he thought of. And oh. he called this uh, sort of process stacking ammo. So he's drawing, drawing ammo, lots of material right. that he thought of during the day, all these really, really good lines. And he mm. writes them down in the hotel notepads rips them out and dumps them in the box for later use. Um, and I thought, which which, which is why um, what you just said about the ignorance is important sometimes for improvisation. Um, the first part of that, uh, first, first question of that sort of topic is, um, do you ever think about improvising in your head during a day? Does music... That's how I learned it, actually. I, I learned it much more through in my head than just thinking at the, at the piano, because oh. because what I could do at the piano was quite limited, hmm. and uh, it, it could be a bit frustrating. But when I, I had long walks to school, you know, half an hour or so, you know, sometimes in freezing cold <laughs> and so, in Winnipeg, yeah, um, and um, I would fill my head with these kind of imagining what I could do on the piano if I could really improvise mm. several things at once or if I had an extra arm. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have a student that has been doing serious research into prosthetic arms because she'd like to have a third arm <laughs> to play. <laughs> but play. So I, I sympathize with that. But, but it, So I imagined these kind of impossible things. Yeah. And then that would, after practicing these things in my head, or maybe not always impossible maybe just just ideas and mm -hmm. and then i would when i got a chance to improvise when i got home or something i would try things and put them in a on a tape recorder and listen mm -hmm. and and if eventually a few of those things from my box of ammo my head ammo yeah came through to my fingers and they they kind of worked mm. and so eventually I, I remember what that felt like so if i do this move and this move then i can create the that effect I had in my head ah. of this kind of multi-dimensional thing. So it's maybe not that difficult if I do such and such. So I, I kind of, I would say, I, I, that's a very good question because, yeah, I think it, a lot of improvising is in the head and, and, and listening to the sounds during the day as well, taking in things that you hear, little snatches of melody, mm. stupid little things on the TV that you hear or... Or on the on the on the train, you know, there's little noises, and you know, and eventually they all get digested, and you it comes out at some point. Mm. So it's 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 all process in the head. Your body and your fingers are just the vehicle. Yeah, but but when you actually live sit down and play, then it it. It doesn't all come from the head. It comes from your fingers. Mm. They go back to your head and then and then back. It's like a loop. Mm. I'm, I've described it to, sometimes as 
being like a, a coach your 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 brain you're sitting there like a uh, there's a football game going on and with your fingers and you're the coach kind of event- kind of occasionally saying well maybe you should do this mm. maybe you do that but actually you're just watching and observing what's what comes out mm. kind of the subconscious sort of takes over mm. and uh, you think through your fingers not through your brain but but that's when you you're actually doing it but when I'm practicing it and trying to get ideas, I often do it more in my head. Mm. Because otherwise, I'm just repeating the same old things that I, I think I can do, you know, with a few variations. Yes, you know? yes. Has any improvisational piece that you've done um, resembled something you've improvised in the past? Maybe because of habit? Or do you always yeah, try to yeah. do different things? Well, yeah, I mean, we were... Um, we can't avo- I think we can't avoid repetition mm. um, to a certain extent. Sometimes it just happens, and sometimes, you, well, occasionally I mean, you have to you have to um, give a little help to what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, well, if this isn't going anywhere, but but if I if I do some this kind of move now, if I if I change gears in this particular way as I've done before, I know that that could work. So then I'll get over this this little dry p- period you know so yeah so it's not all ideal kind of um you know coming from god <laughs> through <laughs> your fingers you know uh, there, there are certain things that are pre preconceived and you re re recook them and yeah. try it again yes. in, in different ways but uh you're a composer too so there's a uh, so it's um, piano performance, improvisation, and composing. Um, what is the sort of the, the relationship between the skill of improvisation and musical problem solving? Is there a positive correlation? If you're if you're a good um, improviser, will that make you a better musical problem solver when it comes to your own compositions? Say, for example, you're at a section in your piece where you just don't quite know how to proceed. But if you're good at improvisation, you can possibly give yourself a higher chance of getting out of that rut. Do you think there's a positive correlation between being good at improvising and being a good problem solver? Yeah, well, I think it's it's hard to separate for me composing and improvising. Mm. They're, they're two ends of the same thing, mm-hmm. of the same spectrum, mm-hmm. um, which are... I would say over the years they've come closer together. When I started off composing seriously in my early 20s, I, I was doing it through my teens. Well, as I said, when I was nine, I thought I wanted to be Beethoven. <laughs> so, so I did, but I sort of dropped that a bit when I was really working hard at the piano, you know. Yeah. And when I was with William Aidan, one of my main teacher, I guess, in um, London, Ontario, when I was studying there. He taught me so much about piano technique, and I just practiced really eight hours, ten hours a day, and I, there was no time to compose really. Although I did a little bit, I had second study com- composition, and I finished a few little pieces. Um, but um, it wasn't until I got to Juilliard that I kind of made that decision to go more into composition. But sorry, I've, I've lost the track. What would I say? I um, when I so. When I got to Juilliard, I guess that's when I, for for various reasons, that's when I decided to go more into composition. I'd, I'd, I'd done well in a few international competitions and things, but I, quite young, you know, I was like 20 when I, I won a prize in Queen Elizabeth. But, and that was from all the really hard work as a pianist that I put in. But then I just didn't really want to to dedicate my life to that anymore because I, I felt really all along I wanted to do something more personal for me. Mm. So so anyway, when I was writing my first few pieces, it was so painstaking because I, I knew that I had to find some, quote, original approach to, to it. So, so everything I was writing, I threw out, you know, and it was so painstaking and um, took me months and months to write a few pages and... Um, but if I improvised, I could do a piece immediately. 
because I felt that they had become quite good at this, so there was a kind of organic quality. And, um, but those remained, it remained a real tension for me, that, that, that thing, until in, when I moved back to Toronto and was living there for a while in the 80s, um, I um, had a concert at Brock University, St. Catharines, and um, they gave me this theme based on the letters from Brock University, St. Catharines, a long, long kind of theme. And uh, I decided I'd do the second. The first half was all Bach and uh, Preludes and Fugues. I think I played like 12 Preludes and Fugues. And then the second half was um, entirely made of a sonotiform improvisation based on this theme. It's four movements. And I recorded it. It was recorded. And um, I... Um, some of it was okay. It was it worked. They, they they loved it, but but I didn't think it was all really quite. Would I would I some anything I would save or try to come, but but the slow movement somehow hit something. The the slow movement which had a it ended up having a middle section, which came about because a lady in the audience coughed loudly, and if she hadn't coughed loudly, I would have carried on in my kind of. <laughs> my kind of dreamy thing, but it suddenly kind of created this kind of oh. tension. And I, so, and when I listened to this later, I thought, well, that, there's something about that movement that sounds like a piano concerto. Mm. It has, it seems to, that, that moment was sort of when the orchestra came in or something, not quite as simple as that. But, um, and I thought, what would happen if I try to transcribe this and, and orchestrate it? And a couple of months later, yeah, I came up with this, piece you know fully orchestrated and with piano and I and I thought that I would just take the beginning of it and and then of course change everything because none of it would be rigorous enough for a composition because I knew how much work a composition was but I hardly changed anything I think I added four bars and of course different layers for the orchestra but but the but otherwise it was exactly as written but it took ages to transcribe it and then I, I realized, well, if I can, you know, it brought the idea of composition. I actually can compose and write it down. But I don't, I, I, I still, part of me, think that's sort of cheating. So I've only done that one other time with one other piece. But I certainly, if I get stuck, as you say, with um, intellectually, I can't seem to go any further, then I'll just record myself improvising the next section, try it a few times, and and take something from and then I say oh yeah okay that makes sense now I see I needed to have a longer phrase there mm. or something like that so and that's why it didn't work um, and and so I'll use I'm I'm not afraid to use improvising more now as part of my process yeah you know? why do you think it's cheating if you improvise and not compose um. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Well, you see, I'm still, I'm still partly conflicted about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say it partly tongue in cheek. It's not exactly che cheating, but it's. Um, Do you feel guilty? I don't. I wouldn't want to go as far as to and. I'm not sure why, but I wouldn't want to go as far as getting a MIDI keyboard and and putting everything, you know, improvising, and then getting someone to transcribe it. And mm. um, someone said that. Uh, Chelsea's piano pieces were were improvised, and the students transcribed it from. Oh. I don't know if that's true, but um, so probably it has been done that sort of hmm. that sort of thing. But um, no, I like sitting with paper and pencil and working things out. Still, I, I, that's really a lot of my life, and I wouldn't want to <laughs> just go to improvising everything. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, I think there's room for both. You can improvise a, a foundation and then with your yes. pen and paper and sit down. Just oh, yes, yes, yes. Rearrange I've done things. that as well. You yes. know, taken an, an idea from an improvisation and then, in a way, that can be the foundation. And then, and then you work out yeah. something which changes as it goes along. Yes, that that's that's perfectly fine. It's when you it's it's note for note transcription. Uh, I, I think I would. It could be a bit of a dead end, I'm afraid. Mm. Occasionally, it might happen. 
you know, with that those rare moments of inspiration where, my God, it just came out. <laughs> it's happened a few times. <laughs> Not always. <laughs> yeah. but, and then, you know, you can't really change anything when you think about yeah. it. So then why not just transcribe it? Yes. Mm. Um, i like to just go on to uh, the topic of leadership, musical leadership, because you you were the head of keyboard, is that correct, from 1999 to 2007? Would that be the correct time frame? Was it seven or eight? I, I can't remember. You're probably correct. I think, I was, I think it was eight years, so seven. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, Reflecting on those times, um, what do you remember about being head of department at Trinity? It was um, it was wonderful in a way. I mean, I I did some crazy things, <laughs> um, but um, they they put up with it. Um, <laughs> but um, no, one one of my best memories was uh, choosing all the new pianos for the new place when we moved to. To to the this Royal Naval College mm -hmm. from Bond Street, and and selling off all the old pianos. That was my my one of my jobs, and it was fascinating going to all these different piano companies and bargaining with them and <laughs> picking a few uh, you know nice grand pianos and yeah more than a few actually. Mm. But um, and um, um, yes, I enjoyed putting on festivals and. That's what I really enjoyed. Um, I guess the the day to day administration, I I was okay with it. When I first started, I hadn't even used a computer. <laughs> I learned quickly. <laughs> so, um, uh, but um, no, I mean the politics. There's politics in any institution, and sometimes it's difficult. Mm -hmm. But. Um, no, it was good. I think the reason I stepped down was um, I was putting so much effort into all these things. And um, I started to also see repetition, like cycles of things where we're going through the same process again to, to revise the curriculum. And we've already been through it. And I like to move on and do new things and not always just repeating the old things. So I think that's one of the reasons mm. you talk about stepping down but what about stepping up was it a position you sought after or did someone recommend you to take it what was the i never imagined i'd do anything like that really <laughs> really i not in my wildest dreams but um and i won't go into how it all happened yeah. but it was really kind of just a fluke mm. that i was in the right place at the right time and they needed somebody and i applied for it and I think two out of four went for it <laughs> on the panel and they were influential enough to get me into the position despite mm. all the risks they felt were involved hiring yeah. someone like me <laughs> seemed to be kind of um a bit not not a bit, someone that's you know I guess I'm a bit shy and a bit kind of eccentric in some ways and uh, not not a managerial looking type mm. But um, I surprised myself eventually, and and them, <laughs> I think, in um, taking certain, you know, pushing certain things and mm. make, having a few successful changes, and you know, what was the toughest decision you had to make as a head of department during your time there? Um, uh, I can't. I probably something to do with. Um, well, it's always a, a very tough decision if someone doesn't pass, you know. And um, I remember one of the external examiners saying people should be allowed to fail. <laughs> it's their right, you know. Mm. And, and, that, and it was kind of, yes, that made me feel a bit better. But still, you know, people come and they put so much effort and and then they don't make it and but i mean it's not the end of the world they'll go on and do other things and, and i do believe that what you learn in one uh in one discipline is transferable mm -hmm. so if they go on and do other things it, it, they will have still got a lot out of that and it's just a piece of paper mm -hmm. you know i the my 
degrees that I have to me are just piece of, pieces of paper. I've mm. need, never needed to show anyone that I have this particular degree in order to do something. So, But I'm glad that I had those experiences. Mm. What I learned from the, te- the teachers and the, the students, if I'd just been on my own, just doing everything freelance, it'd be very tough. So I think going to these institutions is... I really try to keep reminding the students that it's not all about the degree, it's about your experience. And the people you meet as well, and the mm. contacts you, you have. Exactly, yeah. Yes. yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, I'd like to move on to, to solitude and friendship as a last segment of today's episode. Um, reading this, I feel like we have something in common, which is both appreciation of both solitude and friendship in equal measure as you mentioned in the article with the cross-eyed pianist to the art to the question where would you like to be in 10 years time um you said like to experience both solitude and friendship in equal measure and oh did i say that yes (laughs) (laughs) and it's it's something i really really resonated with as a Mm. introvert myself as well um I wonder if you can speak about the importance of solitude in your life as a person as well as a musician. How how important has it been? Um I, I don't think I, I would ever have thought of being a composer or after the age of nine, I, you know, later seriously going into com- composition if I hadn't had certain experiences of solitude. Mm. And um not for huge amounts of time. I mean, I you know I wasn't a hermit living in a you know up on a mountain for you know months or something like that. I've never done that. I, I, I've or gone to retreats, maybe a couple that sort of thing in in my twenties. But but that wasn't. Uh, I would say one experience I remember was uh, I was doing a concert tour of um, northern. Manitoba and Saskatchewan and these little communities and um, uh, there was one place Leaf Rapids, Manitoba, and I was playing for a tiny audience there. And most most of the town was under a big uh, one big structure because it was so cold outside that they just created this town underneath. Uh, uh, everything was enclosed. So so after I played my concert and I I just went out in the in the evening and went for this long walk into the I didn't know where I was going um you know in the snow and and it, it wasn't at that moment all that cold but and I remember um just walking along and as if suddenly you know there was wasn't a soul around and these pine trees seemed to be kind of calling I don't know how to put it that way it was a kind of weird sensation out of oh no it's a kind of out of body sensation and I just kept walking and walking and, and this blue kind of deep blue light I don't know where it came from started to emanate from from the landscape and then it got to a certain point and it suddenly went all just completely dark and foreboding and um um, I think it, it brought it brought to mind a, a line from a, a Rilke poem, which is it it is our um, unshieldedness on which we depend, which I think could translate as something like, we need to be free to be unprotected to be kind of apart from everything and kind of sort of to to feel that a, a totality of being somehow mm. and and. Um, so, so if, if that's just one experience, but but I I think that's um, that was in my early twenties and kept me going. It gave me an idea for peace, mm. <laughs> and um, <laughs> which I kind of, but but the, the yeah I think the, the, these experiences directly related to my, how how my style developed, I think, mm. and um, and I guess as as I developed as a person, and. Um, but of course, as you probably know, you can feel solitude in the middle of a busy city, and you can find that peace, you know, or whatever it is. This kind of sense of mm. of it's not lonely. 
Or maybe you feel it's also... I mean, there can be some element of loneliness as a kind of a nostalgic kind of feeling of aloneness. But it's more a kind of... It's it's an elevated feeling of um, transcendence somehow. Hmm. Is it, is it, does it resonate with what you... Yes. Sometimes I feel more comfortable in solitude than I do... I feel less lonely in solitude than I do in a busy cafe yes. in a strange yeah, city. I've heard other people say that. Yeah, that's yeah. true. It's very true. Um, yeah. Some might say that I feel comfortable within myself. That might be partly true, but um, I think as an introvert, sometimes the presence of other souls and physical proximity just doesn't give life but sucks the life out of me. And during those moments, mm. I I crave to be alone. I crave to 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 be either in nature or either reading a book I'm really interested in or listen to music I'm really mm. interested in. Mm. So, and it's not that I don't like people. I do have friends. Mm. I enjoy friendship, mm. but I think there's a inner nature in me to to be in solitude. Mm. Um, do, you, do you find solitude rejuvenating sometimes when you're, say, let's say exhausted, being alone helps you revive yourself in a way or not really? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It does. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, um, I don't always take advantage of it, but, when, you know, I'm like I have a, a a walk every day, or every couple of days anyway, with my, our dog mm. <laughs> in, the, you know, an hour and a half, just just not meeting many people and just wandering in the, in the country. So that's a kind of solitude, but it's... Um, uh, maybe, maybe that's the kind of um, I, I don't like to make any comparison, of course, but uh, maybe Beethoven felt that and it, why he loved walking so much is a mm. sense of getting away and being able to just think and you know, yeah, be with nature. But um, no, but as you say, the solitude could just be sitting in a room uh, or just be slightly apart from other people or or just uh, going outside in the back of a building and just for a few seconds it can just be a few seconds and you feel kind of yeah rejuvenated yeah hmm. just a just a last question a final remark it's a fill in the blank question um can you finish this sentence for me in your own words um friendship to you is dot 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 oh my god um Friendship to me is completing who I am. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, Douglas, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you.